I would like if I may to take you on a strange journey. Nine cents, everyone. Nine cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you, and today I'm being joined by the fantastic, the one and only Aden Arden. How are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you? So, so wonderful. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> so offensive in so many, mainly because it's a bad impression. I don't even know if you could call it that. Whatever yeah. I just did, it was poorly done. No, no, because now that I have a far bigger apartment, I have a roommate oh, who shit. is Jewish. Oh, shit. We're, we're spot on. Yeah. Right. Represent. I was going to say something about eat it, some person who can <laughs> impersonations. But uh, yeah, apparently not. I just, I'm on my, st- started my second. Started. So, uh, you know, maybe by the end of the show, I'll be nice and lubricated. <laughs> Just oh, thank God, because last time, that, that dry run, man, it was like being circumcised all over again. <laughs> hey, boy. All right, people, it is July 26th, and we have a fantastic show for you this week. I'm not just, this is not lip service. This is not Adam lip service. I really, I, we, collectively, Aden and I, have an amazing show for you this week. First of all, we're going to kick it off with the next Militant Eroticism, episode 26. What are we calling this one? Uh, Virtually Dating, Good Riddance to Pseudo-Romance. Virtually Dating. All right, I have never yet done this, so this uh, might be a a lesson when I leave my wife for not having taken care of me like Terry Garr takes care of Michael Keaton in Mr. Mom! Weird meta reference. (laughs) Just just get off it, because I saw that little video. If okay. I was your wife, I would have just dead stared at you and said, you know what? I have a vibrator that can do just as much as you do in the bedroom. More so, consistently and longer. I right? It doesn't shape shift all up in my ass. <laughs> yeah, no, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, okay, so obviously we're kicking it off hard with Milton Rossism. We're going to do a little bit of something different. With Heather Height, this is episode eight: stand-up philosophy and sociology of centurions. Woo, Heather! <laughs> For those of you who have been paying attention, something different is, is really wonderful. I I cannot believe we're already on episode eight of it. I've been completely enjoying it. Last week's was awesome, and so this week, well, it's just by right, it must be as cool. We're gonna follow that up with. <clears throat> you ready for it? I'm so excited. Satanism today. Yes. Yeah, that's right, Magister David Harris finally, finally brought back Satanism today. And uh, I've been listening to this episode, <laughs> waiting for us to start our uh, our show here, and it's good. Oh, is it good. We're going to do a little interview. We He is going to do a little interview with uh, Reverend Crowell. You may not know that name this moment, but you will shortly. Stay tuned for that, and we're going to close it out. I had a fantastic conversation with Magister Rose about his 
recently released third edition of Infernalia. We talk about some of the threads of ideas that run through his essays and uh, wax a little bit about, uh, you know, where he comes from, how he was introduced to Satanism. And uh, all in all, it's a fantastic discussion. Definitely stick around for that. Got a couple announcements before we dive into the show, however. First and foremost, as I don't really see Nine Cents as a business, but in the framework of what I'm about to say, it makes a little bit more sense if I refer to it as business. So any good business listens to its customers. In this particular case, we like to listen to you, the audience. How will you think? How you feel? <laughs> Every once in a while, I get a random email from you guys. They're just like, I hate that person. Why are you doing this? Which is always nice, but that doesn't really help me much. So <laughs> I put together a little listener survey. Now I know no one really likes doing listener surveys, so I'm tacking on the word contest at the end of it, which basically means I had to design a t-shirt in order to give away to three contest entries that will win said t-shirt simply by being randomly selected after having completed said listener survey. So here's what you do. 9centspodcast.com forward slash contest.php. It's going to be in the show notes. It's going to be on every social media. And hopefully the other um, uh, the other segment uh, contributors are going to be sharing it out as well. So there's no possible way that you don't have the opportunity to let us know what you think. And now this isn't just, are we doing a good job? Which, of course, we'd like to know that as well. But it's a little bit more like, uh, what are your favorite segments? Why do you like them? What are your uh, favorite contributor segments? Why do you like those? What can we do to better speak to the greater satanic conversation? How can we be more relevant as Satanists in your lives with our message? So definitely, there's, I don't know, maybe 15 questions. Take the time, enter the contest, but more importantly, let us know. This is really important with how we develop Nine Cents in the future for you. This is your chance to make a mark on Nine Cents. Don't pass it up. And you might get a free t-shirt. <laughs> Why not? You, nothing to lose. All right. Um, and, yeah. and I got to say, if I'm voted the greatest segment ever, I will post ever. the naked pictures I took at Conclave. Oh, shit. Totally lying. I just, you know, no, I'm not, not really. I will post these naked pictures. I will be banned from Facebook for you people. <laughs> See what we do for you. <laughs> See, we are willing to be banned <laughs> from social media. <laughs> yeah. No, good stuff. It's, I mean, it's free t-shirt. Who? Why wouldn't you just take three minutes of your life, let us know what you're doing, and then enter for a chance to win? Of course, if you are one of the lucky winners, um, I better see a photo of you wearing this tee. Now, I'm obviously making some for all the contributors and stuff. Uh, I reached out to uh, my nephew who does this screen printing gig professionally. And so uh, these are going to be amazing quality. Um, really fantastic. You're going to want to hold on to them. And they're not going to be available anywhere else in any other time. This is like a one-time thing. So... If you're one of those people who likes to collect things, this is your shot. Now, wait. All right, um, 
Oh, so one last note here. Actually, you know, not one last. I forgot to tack on something here at the end. But uh, we part, Nine Cents collectively partners up with a couple different businesses. Uh, so the very first one we partnered up with was Asp Apparel, an amazing uh, apparel and accoutrement provider uh, out of the UK. Um, you should definitely be checking out aspapparel.com if you haven't, but we have some clothing and apparel options sold officially licensed through them if you're interested we also have a business relationship with old nick magazine of course you are all familiar with old nick's peep show which is part of that um, agreement and of course i feel very lucky because i get a chat with uh, some wonderful people because of this relationship we're adding one more this is more recent um, but I think it's a mutually beneficial arrangement where I Satanist is going to be a part of this uh, Nine Cents partnership. Uh, they're mm-hmm. going to be having sprinkled throughout our episodes. Well, not sprinkled. They're going to have one <laughs> segment, one commercial spot, which are all creative, all originally crafted specifically for Nine Cents. You will not hear them anywhere else because I do know that they have relationships with other people. But um, everything on Nine Cents will be original. It will be one-off. And if you haven't seen the products that iSatanist is offering, you're really missing out. You know, there's throughout the history of the organization of the Church of Satan, there have been a lot of different uh, businesses and individuals who have tried to offer products at a certain caliber to those of discriminating taste, us Satanists. I Satanist has done an amazing job meeting and beating every one of those standards. So if you are ever wondering where can I get a CUS uh, sigil of Baphomet pendant or necklace or wall plaque or anything, check out isatanist.com and you'll be hearing a commercial here probably halfway through the show uh, directly from them. It's a <laughs> kind of fun little way to break up the the podcast as well. Um, but just know, you know, we, we enter into these uh, partnerships not to, uh, I, we're, not, we're not hard selling anyone anything. This is because we respect each other in what we do, you know, this podcast and their, their products, um, in Isatanist's uh, situation specifically. And uh, we think that you, the audience, are going to appreciate what they have to offer. And I've been approached by other people wanting to enter into these partnerships and I've politely refused because they don't have the standards that I demand. I wouldn't ever present something to you guys that I personally don't think is high enough quality or um, just plain good enough. And I say, and this definitely is. Um, okay, so I'm a little bit beaten down. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I went swimming with my family and my son beat the crap out of me. It was like two full hours of him trying to dunk me and not being able to. And so I have bruises from like my neck is all kinked from when he was yanking on it, trying to pull me under the water. And it was, I mean, it was great roughhousing with him. I haven't been able to do that in a while because there's been this huge disparity of body size and mass. But he's growing up really quickly like his feet are as big as mine already and he's just <laughs> almost as big as i am so I mean, once he's 18 he's gonna kick the shit out of me i know it but so it's it's exhausting 
uh, having this, this guy just throw me around the pool trying to dunk me for two doggone hours. If you've ever been in a fight, they traditionally last under a minute because they are <laughs> so physically taxing. Unless you are a professional fighter, you can't go rounds. But damn, this kid is, he's like the young version of me and I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> I'm so old, I got bruises already. I'm bruising. I am that old person that bruises easily now. What the fuck? 18 sucks. I, I don't look forward to it. <laughs> mm -mm. It's, oh, oh, damn it. It's going to be horrible. I'm going to have to buy him a car or something just so he likes me enough not to kill me. I think this is where I'm going to have to go. I go. Uh, I remember the first time I beat up my dad. I was so damn proud of myself. I'm like, yeah, what now, bitch? <laughs> it is, it it's is great. Like really gratifying. I, I remember I was, I was working out a lot in middle school and, um, I really want, embarrassing now to say, but I really wanted to be Jean-Claude Van Damme. I, oh my I thought, God. <laughs> I thought he was the pinnacle of coolness. I really, really did. <laughs> I loved Lionheart so much. Oh my gosh. It was great. <laughs> I'm never don't, letting this go. Shh, don't anyone say anything to anyone. <laughs> Let's, this will be our little secret for those of you tuning in. Nine Cent Secret, episode one. <laughs> it's horrible. Um, no, I, I wanted to be him, so I worked out a lot and stuff. And my, my stepdad, I guess, was... I don't know if he was just thinking I was being too... Um, uh, I was bloviating my own strength or or walking around with airs too much. So he decided to take me down to size. He was like, you know what? How about we wrestle? You know, you, uh, you like wrestling around with your brother and, and your friends. Let's, uh, let's see what you got. And so, so he, he got on all fours in the, you know, the starting position. And I put my uh, one arm, right arm around and my left arm under into his, uh, arm. Thank um, you. And, <laughs> and we were all oiled <laughs> up and naked. No. Um, and then I, I moved my arm out and moved it up and over to try to wrap over his head. And I just hit him in the jaw and he dropped onto his belly and he just laid there for a minute. He was like, I'm done. Stop. <laughs> like, that, stop. You just hit me in the jaw. God damn it. That and he, was, he was out like that was it. One hit by accident. And I was just like. Oh, <laughs> I am Conan. Like I felt so like so big and huge at that moment, you know. It was great. Something like a little physical violence to get that testosterone <laughs> pumping. But I mean that too. It's it's um after I'm done out lifting and all that shit now, it's I just like I know that feeling. I'm like, ah, this is this is what all those freighters are talking about. This is nice. <laughs> Did you say all those breeders are talking about? Well yeah, I never understood. I I never understood what all those uh guys I grew up with were talking about after they would work out or got into a fight or wrestled around, I would just look at them and like with with my book and go, you guys look like a bunch of baboons. But now I do that shit and I wrestle around with my friends and I'm like, oh no, hey, I get it. Yeah. This is hot. But then again, you know, I sexualize it as well. Yeah. You know. I think like, maybe subconsciously some of the guys do too. That's just why they like it so much. But I, I think, I think it's all, yeah, I think a part of it is sexualized. But yeah, we're men. Everything, everything is sexualized. Have it's you seen so the true. way people wrestle? <laughs> so my God. true. What they wear? Oh my! Come on. Right? <laughs> they pop hard ons all the time. Yeah. You know that? Did you know? No, when men, no, when men are fighting, the testosterone causes you to get kind of a chubby. 
It doesn't matter who you're wrestling with either. It doesn't even matter if you're gay or straight. It doesn't matter. You just, the testosterone pumping just makes you want to fuck. That's why so many gay men have sex at the gym. Wow, really? No, no, not really. I mean, we're all just really vain. Everyone's wearing tight clothes. You're already sweaty. (laughs) All your muscles are pumped up. You're not going to look that good the rest of the day. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, you're there. Anyway. Um, Okay, so let's see. Do you want to kick it off with a little militant eroticism? Yeah. Let's uh, do this shit. The top hated and the low browed. With a scarlet passion and frantic gospel, I say to you, Thou in sick style remoted altars, be not of love, but of lust. If you want our bellies full, ears our bellies full. Expand your genital rebellion to vindicate the shrew. Let thy brothel be revelation, then thy moans are divine wisdom. There's no salvation in the whole religion. Our dogma is their kink. With legs spread, with flesh mounted, we point out to our accusers, a slut alone is no slut at all. This I say to you, my fellow eroticists, my hands-on warriors, it doesn't matter who bends over. In the end, we are all degraded. Welcome back. This is Militant Eroticism, episode 26. Virtually dating, good riddance to pseudo-romance, and I and the ever-so-arrogant Adenarda. <laughs> Welcome to a new era of pre-interviewing, hedging bets, and controlling your romantic success rate as much as possible. This is digital witchcraft, scrying methods, and algorithm-centered crystal balls abound. When it comes to dating, we all attempt to be the Oracle of Delphi, standing at our electrical cauldrons and waiting breathlessly pensive over our message box like the entrails of a freshly slaughtered sacrifice. We chant before our altars, aid me in my magical working on this rainy night, O great Cupid. Light my life from my office desk. Upon these boxes I click, upon the photos I view with lust, let my great love appear. Move and appear upon my flashing screen. Show me love, show me romance, show me my ideal. I send you out into the man-made universe to call nothing less than a mate made for me. Any tool subjected to absolutism will fail your expectations. Fishing in a more precise stream with high expectations is no different than shopping in your favorite store. You know you like the store, you know you got clothes, you know that the store has clothes that you like, doesn't fucking mean you'll like every goddamn thing you come across, and it's no guarantee that you'll find anything at all. Consider that a warning. I have warned you. I don't want to hear your shit in my email box this time. You promised me. You promised me it would work. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't promise you shit. I made a suggestion. Plausible deniability. <laughs> You hear often that internet dating has or is destroying romance and human interaction. Uh, 
I'm sorry, destroying romance and human interaction, or that it creates a false sense of security. Now, on the other hand, internet dating is treated as some kind of magical savior tool where one can find their tailor-made mate. But it's odd that when it comes to these technological tools of interaction that not many can break it down to decide how and where it is, uh, where it is useful. Now, I know this is a popular opinion and I hear it, uh, you know, like braid back at me, but TV is not all that fucking bad and neither is the goddamn internet. Come on. Without television, without theaters, without this technology, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to watch the 4400 and the Simpsons. Now, fuck you. I need this box to watch these things, and I enjoy myself, and it does. these two shows do not rot my brain for longer than 30 minutes a day. Not all that bad. And neither is the internet. I wouldn't have met half the people I have without the internet. Without it. There is no way I would have been able to meet my closest friends without this fantastic tool. They lived... 500 miles away from me. But one must experiment with it and figure out how best to apply it. It seems to me that if one uses a hammer for everything and then is disappointed that they've broken half the shit that they own as well as a few broken bones, you were probably using the hammer wrong. You're not going to use a tool for everything. And it's silly to think that you can or that you should. Research, which all research I cite in this episode is on the Militant Eroticism Facebook page, indicates that couples who met online and get married tend to have longer relationships, happier ones, and on average, a far lower divorce, uh, divorce rate than those who meet traditionally. Now, before you sing praises to the virtual method of dating, consider the new problems one faces. With so many partners to choose from, serial dating seems like an inevitability because you're always, you're always surrounded by all these interesting people, um, better looking people, and there's always that thought of, did, did I miss out? Is something better going to come along? That's the problem with, um, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Over-accessibility. Too, uh, it's too accessible. And also another problem is the air of anonymity creates a full-on interaction with one's grandiosity. You are interacting with pure, unadulterated narcissism. Pretty much, OkCupid is filled with nothing but people like me. Another issue is the self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of these dating site algorithms. Not one, and I mean that, not one of these supposed algorithms have been examined scientifically. And it could be said that these percentages viewed on OkCupid or eHarmony produce a confirmation bias and a kind of placebo effect. Uh, oh, he's 90%, we're gonna be so happy together. And then if you do meet and You'll excuse things. It's like a permanent honeymoon phase, but a honeymoon phase backed by what you think is a scientific guarantee. This uh, principle is talked about a lot in sci-fi movies. Gattaca, just because something is scientifically backed and scientifically designed just does not mean it's fucking fallible. Now, what does make these dating sites an asset to human interaction? The promise it holds is that you are no longer bound by social circles or proximity. The complaint that it is easier to lie on the internet, I just roll my eyes at that. Posing on dates is just as traditional in person as it is on the internet. Besides, lying about your looks is just, it's easy to, to disprove, as for a few pictures. If you eventually meet in person, that's the most obvious way to know that they're lying. Just meet the fucking person. <laughs> and you know what? If you meet the person and they lied, walk away. There is a big world out there, and you have, like, 10 different directions you can go in. I guarantee you any one of them will work to walk away from the liar. 
Now, if one takes this tool seriously and has the proper goal in mind, you can find a better candidate for dating simply by alignment. Take your time with these profiles. You know, isn't a mate worth it? The issue I have with traditional dating is that it is a huge time investment. And I can understand in the past why that time investment was important. Marriage and children were important to one's survival, but those times are over. Now marriage and children, romance and reproduction are, well, far more children than marriage, are, they're luxuries. The, uh, you don't need to have children anymore to survive. It's, it's, those times are done. One can literally sift through the dirt in a more precise way if one wants to date. And that is my ultimate warning on internet dating. Use it to date and not just because you're lonely. Use a tool for its purpose, you know, finding a companion. This, uh, th these arguments about is internet dating evil or is it great? Is it, um, is, is it destroying interaction? Is, is it not? This, this reminds me of the argument between practical special effects and CGI. It, it, this argument shouldn't happen. It's a, it's a false dichotomy. CGI is great. It's a fantastic tool. Now, when you use it all the motherfucking time, you get shit shows <laughs> like the prequels and the Star Wars episodes. <laughs> if you use it tastefully, like in the Dark Knight series or in modern horror movies, if you use it tastefully, it can be a fantastic tool. Or it looks like in the new Star Wars movie, it seems to be used tastefully. They're mixing it with practical effects. But for some reason, some new gizmo comes out and it's like, oh my god, we can never go back. We must use it all the time and everywhere, hence my hammer analogy. <laughs> if you want to build a house, a hammer is probably a good idea to use. If you're trying to have sex with your wife, don't use a hammer. Oh, fuck, I gotta reschedule that then. I'm leaving that alone. <laughs> I just want Hellraiser, okay? <laughs> also, you can liken this to global travel. It it open tools like this that allow for a more free human interaction. It opens up the it opens you up to many new choices and options. It's like permanently being stuck in Subway, and that's it's it's not a bad thing to have more options, but as I said earlier, people just get carried away. Don't. Use the tool for what it's meant to use, or meant for. Use it to date, use it to find someone in a more precise and uh, time-saving way. So, as always, my fellow eroticists, keep your skirts up, your pants down, no matter who bends over, do it virtually. <laughs> There's no smelling involved in that case, which is uh, sometimes it's kind of nice. So well, like I said, like I said, you the goal is, of course, to meet. Um, yeah, I, I've met people on OkCupid where it's all always online. I'm like, I did not sign up for this site for a fucking pen pal. I had those in, in school. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. There's telephones. There's um, there's telephones, and there's you know the real world. Let's not forget that still exists. Let's, you know, let's talk there. <laughs> your window. Right? It's there. I, I think that's important for everyone to really understand because, I mean, you're hitting a, a really, really imperative idea that I don't think people really grasp all that much. They sort of take it to extremes. 
the internet in and of itself is a tool to be used in order to do something else. It's not in and of itself the beginning and end. Uh, whether it's a relationship or whether it's a bit, you know, whatever, you don't just keep it online. That's not reality. I think as right. Satanists, we should all be able to recognize that. We champion actual real world accomplishment, not digital badges. <laughs> That's why I never understood the people that, um, okay, so some people are going to get mad at me for saying this shit. I, I never <laughs> understood the people that just sit there on their consoles or on their computers and play video games every second of the day thinking that they're having meaningful human interaction with the other people they're playing with, racking up these badges and, I don't know, awards, I guess they get, and then thinking that's somehow living a fulfilling life. <laughs> There's nothing satanic about that. Yeah, I can understand the online gaming culture, but that's because my little brother's really into World of Warcraft and all that shit. So he'll set it aside a few hours to get in his computer chair and his four screen computer that he built himself. My Whoa. brother's like, my brother's a whiz at this shit. So it's not just gaming culture. He just loves computers and spends all day building them and all that shit. If I have a problem, I call him like, yo, possess my computer. I'm not sure how you do it, but possess it, fix this. And I, and watching him do it, I can understand online culture. It, it's almost like an interactive chat room. I get it. It's fun. But those people, you're right. Those people who spend all day, it's a difference between you know enjoying a beer and drinking all the time. Yeah, it's all day. Yeah. Right now, this internet, this internet dating thing, the examples I used about oh my god, who could who could ever go back? I could I, sh I could have likened that to to an essay Levey wrote. Um, no, not an essay. He said it in the Satanic Rituals. Yeah. You know, oh, they'll never drive small cars again. Skirts will never be long again. That example that he says. You know. Magicians, wizards, warlocks, witches—we should never think that way. It—it's mm -hmm. um, you know something new happens and the public says, "Oh, we can never go back." That's a good—that's it's that's a good indication that you should avoid that thinking. But I even hear this from other Satanists: "Oh, online dating, evil. TV, bad. Really? You're not talking to me on Facebook right now." <laughs> okay, let me just point yeah. that out to you. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I am so grateful to live in the era that I do. Sure, there's you know there's way too much compulsion went from electronics to shopping. It doesn't matter. Pick pick your fucking vice and run with it. Right. But I wouldn't have met you. I wouldn't have met Darren. I wouldn't have met Marilyn. I wouldn't have met any anyone. Almost anybody that I know now in New York, I wouldn't have met without the internet in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And television, come on. The Simpsons? Hello? <laughs> South Park? Come on. Are you going to tell me South Park <laughs> is bad? No. <laughs> yeah, I think whenever we... I don't know if it's uh, human nature to do this initially or if it's just trying to jump on a bandwagon when we do it. But we do, collectively, we do often find a new technology and just either wholly embrace it and wrap ourselves around it or completely abstain and call it the devil. <laughs> like, it's, it's rare you find someone that's like, I'm going to explore this tool. If it's appropriate for parts of my life, then I will use it for that. And then I will do other things in the rest of my life. 
that's the way we should be approaching everything. Like right? literally everything. Uh, books, I love being able to sit down and have the texture and the feel of thumbing through a book. But equally, I love the convenience of being able to poop at work and read on my phone. <laughs> I actually don't poop at work. Just the idea that you can at any time, whether you're on a, a, a bus or a plane or, you know, as a passenger in a car, you can just read a novel on your phone. That's amazing to me. But you don't exclusively do that. Online dating, bringing it back to home here. It is a tool in order to have a... <laughs> individual one-on-one -on -one relationship or interaction encounter not just to have a like you said a, a pen pal that's the most absurd thing ever i've never understood those uh individuals that are content with a cyber relationship uh, it drives me cr i i feel so much better for having been able to sit down with you and have a drink with you and talk with you and and look at you and at conclave grab your ass but other than that <laughs> it, it, you know i mean just having that human interaction is really really important and i it's as satanists we we have to understand and respect that it's part of who and what we are it, it, it's the natural way of being a human being use your tools for building a house or meeting someone to hang out with but then get person to person for fuck's sake Right. Nothing beats meeting someone in person. It's like, um, you know, in hookup culture, they, you know, they, they talk, then they meet. And even that isn't enough for me. It's mm -hmm. no, it's now, now here, here's the thing. I, I do prefer when I go out to hunt in person, when I'm looking for someone to bring home or someone to get to know, I do like hunting in person. You feel that we're earlier when you're talking about wrestling with your son, you feel that, that testosterone pumping. You feel that energy. You feel like you're on the prowl. Or when I, when I was talking to a, a few warlocks about picking people up at Conclave, where we're, we're discussing it in terms of hunting, um, and I kept going on about that, about the hunt. There's something about that that just makes you feel alive. Versus online, it's, it's, it's easy. It's just it's, it's easy. But when it comes to dating, I like... I like, I love OkCupid. I love going through the profiles and I'm incredibly judgmental when it comes to them. And then any question I have, I write down and when I message them, I fucking put their face in the fire about it. Politely, you know, I'm not one of those weirdos. Like, explain this! <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but using that tool, that's what the tool is for. It's, we're here for a purpose and it's to find someone that we could, that we are more likely to get along with than meeting someone out at a bar or a club. You know, the research that I posted actually said people who meet online or meet more traditionally through common social circles or through activity interests, like, hey, me and you are both dancers. Hey, me and you are both runners. This kid I grew up with, um, him, him and his new wife, I wouldn't call him a friend, but I, I grew up with him. Every time I'm home, I still hang out with him. I make it a point to see him. Uh, just because we've known each other since we were born and our parents are close friends to this day. But he just got married and him and his wife were friends for years. They were running mates. They, they would go running every morning and developed into romance. Um, but those the research stated that online dating, um, assuming they take it seriously and uh, an activity interest lasts far longer. Those relationships and marriages, um, if not indefinitely, you know, actually until death. <laughs> 
than meeting someone at a bar or a club. So the most traditional way to meet people these days through a bar or a club is the worst way to meet somebody. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But this, um, it's you, you, the purpose of this internet dating is you can sift through the filth easier. It's less time restraint, less time investment, and you can be more judgmental with that air of anonymity. Because for some reason, people find it difficult to look someone in the eye and go, no. Personally, I love doing that. You should see the look on someone's face when you look them in the eye and say no, period. They're like in shock. How dare you say no to me? Guess. Right. No, seriously. Dude, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it makes it feel so powerful. <laughs> but yeah, it's, and I find it's, it's too dichotomous. It's, um, it's either it's, it's bad or it's good. No, it's, it's a fucking tool. It's a tool. Have some fun with it. It's um, like porn. Ah, yes. When internet mm, porn yeah. came out and all that free porn was available, they said they never buy porn again. I subscribe to several porn sites. I know many people who still buy porn. No, it did not change anything. If you're satisfied with a three-minute clip, that's your business. I want the full enchilada. I, I, I would gladly pay $20 a month to watch good quality porn than have to sit for hours trying to not catch a computer STD. <laughs> Much like dating. I'd rather spend a little bit of time on OkCupid and meet someone that I will probably enjoy dating than going through a bunch of losers in two weeks and probably catching STD in the process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic, man. Uh, how about you let the good people listening uh, know how they can get in touch with you or where they can find you online. Well, uh, this, this got off a list of mine. All right. <laughs> so you can find <laughs> the research that I post and other little updates for this segment on Facebook, Militant Eroticism on Nine Cents. You can also learn more about my book, Militant Eroticism on Facebook. And then there's, of course, the wonderful website, www.militanteroticism.com. And there is only a week, a week available for the hardcover copy of the book, which is on sale, and no more. Never again. When the second edition comes out, never. Never will I publish it again in hardcover. So get it. Or don't. <laughs> no, I, I, I think everyone should seriously get it. I think it's an amazing read in it. There's there's a large gap in this space of satanic essays when it comes to what you do specifically at N. And Milton Eroticism, the book, fills that gap perfectly. If, <laughs> if, if, I'm not even, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being 100% honest here. I definitely think everyone should pick it up, read it. And if you are a book lover you only have a little bit longer to get the original release, the hardcover version. Why? I, I, you know, it's on sale too. So why the hell wouldn't you go and do it now? Um, but I, I loved it. I have mine on my shelf. It's amazing. And I'm super glad that uh, you put it out. I think it's, I think it's great. Well, you know, I love putting things out to fill a gap. <laughs> that's why, that's why I snickered. <laughs> but I, I have to say, I think it's, um, I would, I, I, a friend commented to me, he's like, you know, you don't seem to be too ecstatic. He's like, aren't you one of the youngest Satanists to put out a book? 
uh, the other, because I own just about every book a member has put out. He's like, you seem to be the only one who's a citizen to do this. You know, you're not even ranked. You're not an active member. And, you know, that's, he's like, that's, that's a thing. And I'm like, really? you know what? <laughs> that's you should write my commercials for me because I suck at selling <laughs> myself. Seriously, I'm just like, here, buy it or don't, whatever. <laughs> or not, <yeah>, whatever. <laughs> The worst infomercial ever. <laughs> uh, I know. I'm terrible at selling myself. It's, it's, it's why I have other people do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely think everyone should check it out. Um, let's, uh, let's do a little bit of uh, something different and then uh, move on with Satanism today and the creature feature. Yeah. Hey, this is Island Bob Mon speaking on behalf of I Satan this way. Listen, you are so ugly, man. Put on this sigil of Baphomet. Look at you, no. You're so sexy now, man. Here, give it back. That one is mine, boy. I say give it back, or am I gonna cut you, no, boy? You want your own, then go to iSeedness.com and get your own, man. They got everything you need. They got sterling silver pendants, rings and medallions, too. They got an LED wall plaque for your man that you can customize for your sexy self. Whatever you need, they got that boy. Hear me now, iSeatness.com. And say it with me now, iSeatness.com. The highest embodiment of satanic products, man. Go there now and get sexy. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. <sighs> Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. Comicus! 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 Back in the line. Back in the line. He's not in line. He's not in line. He's my agent. Swiftest. Good news. I just got you a job. Now that you're working, you won't be needing this. Wait a minute. That money is mine. I'm sorry. I'm on my wine break. Humor has always been big in my family. A quick comeback or well-placed movie reference was even given more praise than an A on a test. So, of course, I like that I have funny kids. I would like to think there's a correlation between humor and intellect. We all think that we're smart, and we all want to think that our kids are geniuses. There have been tons of studies attempting to link humor and intelligence. I thought it would be an interesting topic, certainly something I could talk a lot about because I'm funny and so smart and all that. So I did a Google Scholar search, thank you, Adeem, for turning me on to its existence, and started reading all about how science measures humor versus intellect. Well, 
Nothing sucks the funny out of humor like science. One study was titled Humor and Competence in School-Aged Children and involved them going into schools and what, like, there's no funny in school. How many class clowns do you remember doing well in school? Yet funny and smart are attributes that often get listed together. I met this great guy. He's funny and smart. But schools do not encourage funny. There is nothing funny about the pressure model for teaching the youth of society. The funny kid was almost always in trouble for rebelling against the conformity of the classroom. It certainly doesn't make it easier to learn when you're funny. Even in college, when my sociology professor mentioned centurions, my brain spent the rest of the class replaying the Pontius Pilate scene from Life of Brian. Centurion, flow him to the floor. To this day, I couldn't tell you why the fuck we were talking about centurions in sociology, but I know that Pontius Pilate has a very good friend in Rome named Bicus Dickus. You wouldn't know it if I didn't tell you just now, but I had to stop writing this and talk to Dave about Life of Brian for about 15 minutes to get it out of my system so I could go back to writing. It's pretty common knowledge, or at least it is if you're a philosopher, that John Cleese has a degree in philosophy, as does Steve Martin, Woody Allen, and George Carlin. Philosophy teachers love to tell you what famous people have philosophy degrees. Probably the only thing I retained from Philosophy 101 was that Steve Martin was a philosophy major. They all have degrees in sitting around thinking about stuff, not generally considered the most profitable pastime. I've never heard a parent brag that their kid was a philosopher. Apparently, though, if you write down all your thought stuffs and either recite your thinks in the form of well-timed bitching or act it out in sketch form, it becomes comedy, or as Mel Brooks called them, stand-up philosophers. Thank you for listening to another segment of Something Different with Heather Height on Nine Cents. Find me on Twitter at Heather Height, on Facebook Heather Height, or email me at heatherheight at yahoo.com. Have a great week. Hail Satan. Well, no, sir. Well, you sound very sure. 
Have you checked? Well, no, sir. Um, I think it's a joke, sir. Like uh, Silly Osodus or Biggest Dicker, sir. What's so funny about Biggest Dickers? Well, it's a joke name, sir. I have a very great friend in Rome called Biggest Dickers. <laughs> Silence! What is all this insolence? You will find yourself in gladiator school very quickly with rotten behavior like that. Can I go now, sir? Ah! Wait, your biggest stickers hears of this. Wait! Take him away! Oh, sir. You're... No, no, I want him fighting rabid wild animals within a week. Yes, sir. Come on, you. <laughs> I will not have my friends ridiculed by the common soldiery. Anybody else feel like a little giggle when I mention my friend, Dickus? Dickus! What about you? Do you find it visible? When I say the name, Dickus? He has a wife, you know. You know what she's called? She's called Incontinentia. Incontinentia buttocks. Damn! What is all this? Enough of this rowdy rebel sniggering behavior. Silence! Call him from Victorian guards. Seize him! Seize him! Blow your noses and seize him! Ever wonder why genies are trapped in bottles? Because they're a bunch of goddamn drunks! And like all drunks, they'll talk to anyone who will listen until somebody puts a cork back in the bottle. So, want a little drunken genie nonsense? Then grab a bottle of whiskey and rub one out. Or tune into Nine Cents the first week of every month and catch my segment, I Dream of Jesse. Satanism today on the Nine Cents Podcast. This is Magister David Harris. Welcome to this relaunch of Satanism today. Here is part of the Nine Cents Podcast. I am Magister David Harris. I want to start by extending a heartfelt thanks to Reverend Campbell for allowing me to be a part of his fine show. And to extend thanks to the staff of the Nine Cents Podcast for welcoming me and for picking up the ball where I put it down uh, when I stopped doing Satanism today. What the staff of this show has done really has extended what I set out to do by leaps and bounds. And I only hope that in some small way I can continue to contribute to what Reverend Campbell calls uh, furthering the greater satanic conversation. 
On this month's episode of Satanism Today, what we're going to be talking about, um, something that I found to be very, very impressive. Um, it has been a lot of talk in the media about people co-opting our name, using the name Satan to further their own agenda. Whether that agenda be to put a few bucks in their pocket, garner some attention from uh, the mainstream media, or what have you. Uh, one thing they are not doing is representing Satanism. These people are the very definition of frauds, of fakes, phonies. People who choose to use the devil's name but really fall short of playing the devil's game. Um, what we're going to be presenting to you here today is an example of somebody who really and truly uses the devil's name and plays the devil's game to perfection. Someone who worked within the confines and the constructs of the world in which we live and won. In 2012, my guest, Reverend Lee Kroll, took to the court system, the Commonwealth of the State of Virginia, and fought of his own volition for the right for satanic clergy to engage and perform legal wedding ceremonies in the state of Virginia. This is key and paramount in the fight for true acceptance of Satanism as a religion and of Satanism as a, as a legitimate philosophy within the United States of America. When other people are sitting there trying to pull off publicity stunts, Reverend Crowell went into the system headfirst, took the system on, and beat it. When other so-called pseudo-Satanists are fucking around with statues, Reverend Crowell changed a statute. And we're going to be talking with Reverend Crowell about what he did three years ago in 2012. When we come back, this is Satanism Today on the Nine Cents Podcast. And welcome back to Satanism Today. I am Magister David Harris, and I am here on the phone with, uh, with Reverend Lee Crowell. Lee, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me on. Good, good. Now, just to give a little bit of background about um, why you're on the show today. Back in 2012, um, a court decision was made in the Commonwealth of Virginia um, allowing priests and members of the hierarchy of the Church of Satan to legally officiate weddings within the state of Virginia, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And you were responsible for that. You were the one who picked up the mantle and took on this fight and, and we're, we're awfully, awfully proud of you for doing it. And we're going to sing your praises and talk about it today. Well, it definitely wasn't a mantle that I thought was going to be a fight. But, you know, anticipating how our organization is viewed by the general public, uh, I made the, set the groundwork for knowing that it could be a long and protracted legal battle. Now... 
Let's talk about the events that led up to you ultimately petitioning the court for uh, for this right. Um, had you been approached by members of the church to officiate a wedding, or was this? I had not. A, no, not at that time. But after being uh, elevated and ordained a minister with the COS, I thought it was only necessary to take the necessary steps to make sure the legal steps and the paperwork was in place in the event that someone did approach me so that it could be seamless. So in other words, you saw this as something that may become an issue down the road should you be called upon to officiate a wedding. Correct. I mean, I take my, you know, my ordination and the responsibilities as a reverend within the CUS very seriously. And knowing that those of us who are above ground are very few and far between and so making myself available to those that wanted to actually have somebody legally officiate a marriage, I wanted to make sure that I was available for that. Now, from the onset, uh, what kind of op- opposition were you met with prior to the hearing? Well, similar to what we're seeing a lot in the news now with the gay marriage issue, uh, with any bureaucracy, you, you show up to the the courthouse or the clerk's office to fill out the paperwork to get a minister's license. And just like with any bureaucracy, you have to fill out the paperwork and answer a few questions. Um, You're never approached with the people that are in charge. It's always staff people or lesser functionaries. And you can imagine the look on the staff person's face when I filled out the paperwork and standing there looking like Bill Nye, the science guy with a happy grin on my face and slide the paperwork across the table. And she looks at me and says, um, hold on just one moment, please. And disappears into the back. (laughs) Yeah, because this was going on in Virginia. You're essentially in the heart of the Bible Belt. I imagine this was a little off-putting to to some of the folks you may have encountered in in the court system. Well, definitely off-putting, and, you know, this is a very large uh, Baptist community in the area in which I lived. I mean, it is, it is the capital city. It is Richmond, Virginia, but you still have, you know, not only the, the educational and the religious, you know, barriers on trying to push a legal issue, but most staff people are trained in this very rote fashion on how to process paperwork, and they see the same things all the time. And when things are out of the ordinary, they are not charged with making any decisions themselves. Right. They've got all this bureaucracy and, and red tape they have to go through before they can even before a decision can even be made. Correct. Now, at what at the time that you you began this this struggle, how public were you about your affiliation with the church? Oh, I've. I've been uh, very public with my affiliation with the church, even before I was uh, ordained as a reverend within the COS. From even as a the job I have now, uh, I'm everyone in my both my my staff and my my supervisor knows that I'm a reverend in the Church of Satan. And they've never provi- they've never given you any static about it. Uh, no, I've, I've discovered that in the type of work that I do, in the legal profession I do, when you make people a lot of money, whether it's my sexual orientation or my religious affiliation, when you bring in millions of dollars for people, 
they don't really give a damn. <laughs> and that's how it should be. Um, now, on a, on a personal level, as you, as you began to take on this fight, what kind of support were you getting from the outside, from friends, families, loved ones? As far as getting my minister's license within Virginia? Yeah. Uh, that issue really wasn't brought to the forefront as far as uh, no one really knew that it was going on because I didn't really want to make a lot of press or a lot of hay out of it. It was just for my purposes and I think for the COS administration, we were just going through the legal process and we knew we were going to come out at the end triumphant. At least I felt confidently of that. It wasn't about making press releases and getting the ACLU involved and, you know, stirring up a lot of controversy. Right. So this was, this was definitely more about the moral implications and less about making waves publicly um, with, with regards to this, this issue. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say moral implications. I think that's exactly why that first barrier was placed in front of me is because there was some moral hesitation about licensing somebody from the Church of Satan. I was approaching it more from the legal standard and the constitutional rights issue. Now, let's get into the, the procedural um, process that you had to go through. Now, for, if, now if, if I'm understanding correctly, what this actually was, you, you petitioned the court for a hearing to allow you to do this. Now, what does that mean to the layman who may not understand the legal system? Okay, so once my application with the, the clerk was denied, I had to petition the court, which means I had to file under Virginia law to have a judge overrule the clerk and issue my minister's license on behalf of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So either the clerk can do it very in a perfunctory way, which is how most people get it done, or if the clerk refuses, then the judge has the authority to do so. And uh, the, the, the legal statute, as I, as I read through the, uh, some of the documentation that you had provided to me, um, Code 2023 um, states that basically it is summarized in, in, within the, the Commonwealth of Virginia, um, someone petitioning for a, a minister's license must provide proof of ordination uh, within a religious organization, as well as uh, be shown to have be being in regular communion um, with the, the congregants of, of that organization. Now, proof of, proof of ordination, um, it's pretty straightforward. You know, those of us who are, are members of the hierarchy you know, have proof of ordination from the church. What within the, what's the word I'm looking for? Within the construct of the Commonwealth of Virginia, does, constitutes being in regular communion with your congregation, and how how would one perceive, let's say, what um, Christian churches do as opposed to what we do as as the uh, the definition of communion? Well, interestingly enough, uh, the the judge didn't actually get to that question until probably the second hearing, but the regular communion aspect is derived from a case called Kramer versus the Commonwealth, and your listeners can easily find that case on Google Scholar. Um, the citation is 214-VA-561, and that's, that case is really the, the heart that the 
of the precedential issues involved in establishing the test for the court. And in Kramer versus Commonwealth, regular communion, the court determined, was basically mutual participation or joint and common action. The court stays away in its legal analysis in that case all the way back from 1974, not using the term communion in the ecclesiastical sense, which is what you know, most people think of when they think of communion, they think of Catholicism. Right. The court focuses more on communion as in people coming together for a common purpose. And we know from the COS perspective, our purpose routinely has been the pentagonal revisionism and seeing that those five items manifest. Mm -hmm. And so now what did you have to present to the court to establish that as a, a sign of being in regular communion as opposed to, let's say, you know, Christian churches who just simply get together and congregate every Sunday? Well, the difficult concept for the judge was the fact that the CUS doesn't have brick-and-mortar buildings and regular weekly meetings. That was a difficult concept for the court to understand. And I had to rely heavily on the social networking aspects of our organization and the regional cabals that get together on a regular basis, whether it's holidays or special events. What makes it difficult to sort of argue that communion for the judge is because so many of us are have this sort of misanthropic, you know, the myth of the satanic community flowing through our organization and our church. But I was able to pull upon so many of the events that have occurred all the way back from the Letters to the Devil's Days and current social net networking aspects that we have to communicate and get together and commune with one another, that the judge accepted that argument. Now, you had initially been met with some resistance from the judge. In addition to that, as, um, he had asked you about precedent. Uh, correct. Well, there was two, two main issues there. The first, the first hearing um, precedent was whether or not the Church of Satan was actually a religion. We spent a number, uh, we spent probably the first hearing of probably 40 minutes going through the tests the U.S. Supreme Court and the Tenth Circuit established what the testing and the holdings are in order to determine whether the C.O.S. actually was a religion and not just a group of heretics and shit disturbers like so many other groups that we can probably think of. <laughs> but the other test of precedent was toward the end, and that, uh, where the judge was sort of hesitant to be out on a limb on his own in this area of the country and say, acknowledging that I probably had the law on my side, but didn't want to be the one to say, yes, Chief Judge Taylor is the one that issued a minister's license to a Satanist. <laughs> and so he asked me at one hearing towards the end, well, has any other jurisdiction or court issued a license to marry to a Church of Satan member? And at the time, I was, I said, well, I'll, I'll put together another brief, and I'll get back to you. 
And what were your findings there? Well, I was able to, uh, with the help of the administration, pull together enough documents to show that the Church of Satan had been performing marriages from Anton LaVey himself back in 1967 in California. And even as conservative of states as Kentucky in 1971 by other members of the Church at the time. Mm -hmm. And so precedent didn't really need to be established in this case because other states were already just simply allowing members of, you know, priests in the Church to, to officiate weddings legally. Yes, th that, is, that is correct. But the, the challenge I had with establishing that for the record was that because of the age of those cases, the court's record retention policies had destroyed all of the records. Right. So the judge had just had to take my word for it. Right. And so were you met with, were you met with resistance from the judge on that point? Uh, no. Uh, I was able to have an opportunity to present some newspaper references to it, but not necessarily legal court documents that show that it was that it did occur. So I had persuasive evidence and not necessarily factual evidence for the court to review. But ultimately that evidence was accepted as as being some form of, of, of evidence that these weddings had occurred in a legal fashion. And ultimately the judge did find in your favor. Uh, well it's interesting that aspect is because at the last hearing when the judge said he had reviewed all all the briefs I had filed and considered all the testimony, but at the bench when he gave his oral decision, he said that he was not he was going to deny my application for a ministry's license. Really? And it was at that moment, that was the only time during the the two or three month long process and multiple hearings where I lost my cool and I looked at him and I said, "You realize I will win on appeal, Your Honor." <laughs> and he took, he takes off his glasses and he looks at me. He gives me this look like you little shit. <laughs> and I knew I was like, why did I say that? And he's like, I will issue my written decision for you within the next ten days. So I left, sort of like, okay, well, I I anticipated this was going to be a hard road, but now at that point, I'm. I'm angry, right? I'm like, okay, I'm going to take out a second mortgage on my house because I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to win this bastard. <laughs> what, do you so think, I, what do you think, I mean, because ultimately you had presented as much proper legal evidence, as much proper, you know, circumstantial evidence that legal ceremonies had taken place. What, where do you think his opposition came from? Because obviously it wasn't coming from a legal place. No, I think the opposition was... He was the chief judge in, in the circuit court, and he was hesitant to put himself out there to, you know, it's such a novel issue for him and for the circuit that he was really nervous about any sort of press that may come out of it and have his name attached to it, which may hamper his ability to be appointed to a higher bench. He didn't want to be the Satan judge, is what is basically what it was. That's correct. <laughs> but I think part of the... I think one of the things, if I think two things, I think swayed the judge in the end when he issued his final decision in the COS's favor, and that was one. Throughout the three months of testimony, I kept myself in front of that judge 
using lesser magic by picking up uh, child abuse cases and other pro bono cases so that at least twice a week I was in front of that judge. <laughs> My face was in front of him all the time. <laughs> oh, he must have hated you. <laughs> you know, and so, I mean, the first time, I remember the first time he, was, he asked me, he's like, we don't have a hearing on your issue today. And I said, no, Your Honor, I'm here representing so-and-so on this other matter. <laughs> and so where I think that sort of played into my favor is that he could never escape the issue. As much stress as that issue probably caused him, my face and my issue was always in the sinews of every aspect of his life. <laughs> so ultimately he found in your favor just to get rid of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think... You know, in that last hearing, when he said he was going to deny, I, you know, I, I always acknowledge this, is that I also apply greater magic to manifest the victory. And, you know, I need to acknowledge that because it's a very important aspect of our faith. Right. And so you, 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 you purged yourself emotionally and ritualistically to sort of clear your head and focus your energy towards this goal. Yes, and I think, you know, you know, grabbing a hold of that energy and pushing my decision into him and to see that it, you know, whatever the final written decision would be would so that it would be in my favor. And when the the time came when the final written decision was there, it was it came in a simple small envelope and I'm like, Well, this is odd. If it's a denial, it should have be thicker than this. <laughs> and I opened it up. And all it was was my license with his signature. No opinion, no nothing. <laughs> no words, nothing, no verbiage that could be attached to the decision, just here. No, and it was, it is, you could barely understand it, see his signature. It was just a squiggle. <laughs> Plausible deniability. He refuses to be the Satan judge. Yeah. But in the end, you know, it, going through that, I have to think, you know, the most, ex- I think the, the, was for the whole hearing, I have to say the, the funniest part of the whole hearing process was the first hearing when I was, when I was called. The courtroom's full of people waiting for their cases to be called. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, Mr. Crow, why are you here? I don't, why didn't you just go to the clerk? And I said, well, the, the clerk said I had to come to you for my license. And he says, well, why is that? And I said, oh, I don't believe the court was comfortable uh, with my religious affiliation. And so he looks down at the paperwork and he says, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And he says, and he looks at his, his staff and they just put their heads down and he says, well, can you tell me a little bit about your uh, group? And he's trying to be sensitive, I think, because the courtroom is full and he doesn't want to create a scene. Right. And I said, well, I apologize, Your Honor. I'm not sure I understand the question. Do you mean the Church of Satan? <laughs> and all, all behind me, everyone's sort of whispering, waiting for the case to call, be called, and this hush falls over the courtroom. And everyone just... You can see him, I just feel it in the back of my head, like, what the hell did he just say? (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, every now and again, a little bit of first phase is fun. <laughs> yes. Well, that was the opening salvo. And, you know, three months later, there was a victory for our church. So <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, going forward, what, let, let's, talk, let's talk broad picture. You know, okay. This, this, this obviously, you know, as tactfully and as very, very intelligently as you fought this battle, this thing has wide implications. I mean, there is now, there is now officially, you know, legal precedent on the books in, in at least one state in this country, you know, where you know, in other states it may not have been necessary, but there is an absolute concrete on the books record of the of priests in the Church of Satan being legally allowed to officiate weddings. What kind of implications going forward do you think this will have for for the church? Well I I think it's important for your listeners and other members of our congregation to realize that this victory that we achieved in twenty twelve could not have been done without folks like yourself and others that have been sticking your necks out for decades, either before and during the satanic panic and still today. My victory is only achievable because I'm standing on the shoulders, the shoulders of the accomplishments you guys have already achieved. We appreciate that, and and we appreciate what you've done with this. This is far and away probably one of the most remarkable victories for for Satanism in the public eye, for a, a legal body to acknowledge our the right of our priesthood to officiate weddings of our congregation is is nothing short of of amazing and we have you to thank for that and from the bottom of my heart and i'm sure from the bottom of the hearts of of every member of the priesthood of mendes uh we say thank you because this is remarkable well i I think going forward one of the things that you know i hopefully it you know shines some light on those members of the hierarchy and those members that may become elevated in the future is that the key is to remember that we are a church and we have religious tenets and we, our membership is considered a congregation to continue to speak on these issues and to put ourselves out there is we're not just a group of people getting together as heretics and we hate that hate Christians. We have to continue to push ourselves out there as a legitimate church, and that is what's going to continue to move the line on acceptance in our society so that more of our members can come above ground and show people that we are the alien elite and the movers and the shakers of of the world. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners of Satanism Today on the Nine Cents Podcast, Reverend Lee Krell. Lee, thank you so much for, for being here with us today and for everything you've done. It's like I said, it's nothing short of, of extraordinary. And you are an exempt you are a prime example of, of what it means to be a Satanist and a and a priest in this church. Thank you so much. Well thank you very much, Magister Harris. And hopefully your listeners enjoyed it. It's probably not as exciting as a discussion about vagina time or it's hilarious, <laughs> but uh you know. Hopefully somebody got something out of it. (laughs) Lee, thank you very much, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye. Hail Satan.
Hail Satan. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the creature of Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by Magister Michael Rose, author of Infernalia. Uh, fellow listeners will, of course, uh, remember Magister Rose from last year's Greater Magic episode, released just before Halloween. Well, there's a new edition of his uh, really wonderful collection of essays, the popular Infernalia, and uh, I'm so pleased to have you on, Magister Rose. How are you today? I am excellent. Thank Fantastic. you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure of mine. Um, now, when we spoke last, we were speaking specifically around the context of creating your own rituals or ceremonies. Today, because, of course, you have uh, the new edition of Infernalia out, I would really like to talk about a lot of the themes that run through your writing. Uh, before we do that, for those who may not be aware, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about yourself, if you're okay with it. Um, when were you first introduced to Satanism? I first encountered the Satanic Bible probably uh, mid-80s, I think. Huh? Uh, I read it, and it's the familiar old story of <laughs> you read it and you recognize yourself in the pages. This book is about me. <laughs> so, uh, so that is uh, yeah, definitely something I have in common with many, many other people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I read it and uh, sometime Shortly thereafter, this being the, uh, the years of the satanic panic, yeah. I saw uh, one of the talk shows. I can't remember which one it was. And uh, Zena LaVey, who was oh, still yeah. with the Church of Satan at that time, was on the show. And at the end of the show, strangely enough, they ran the address of the Church of Satan. <laughs> so I got in contact and uh, found out how to how to join and thought, you know, I should probably join this as it's the only thing that I've ever found in my life that I really ever resonated with. I should, you know, state my my affinity with it for the world to see. So I did so. <laughs> That's, that's interesting. Was it, um, I mean, you'd already read the Satanic Bible at that point, correct? Yes. So was it the way it was presented in this, um, in this talk show? Or uh, I, what about that specific moment really inspired you? Or was it just the fact that suddenly it was you, just you had Suddenly I was confronted with the address and I thought, yeah. <laughs> it's still there. Yeah, it's real. I'm going to get in touch. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of uh, individuals that self-identify as Satanists nowadays uh, take it for granted, because when it's oh, certainly it in the an, time, it was okay. an entirely different world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing to me. Um, I mean, there, you didn't even know at that time whether or not he was 
still going. You know, that, you know, some 20 odd years after its founding, could it even still exist? You know, in the satanic panic. And let me ask you this, because um, you self-identifying in the 80s, uh, joining in the 80s, was there ever any confusion because there was a lot of propaganda surrounding what Satanism supposedly was versus what it really is. So was there any, any confusion for you, uh, with that going through that time? Uh, not really. I, I, I read the satanic Bible and I identified with that and I said, okay, this is what it is. No one had been, calling themselves Satanists. Yeah. That was a name that you always put on someone else. And for somebody to have the balls to step up and say, I'm a Satanist, this is what Satanism is. And then when you read that and you identify with it, you know, it leads your impulse. Yes, I too am a Satanist. Mm. And all these, you know, at the time, it was beginning, the satanic panic was beginning to create these morons <laughs> who believed that they were Satanists because they believed all the stupid shit that Christians believed Satanists mm-hmm. did. And, you know, it was just very easy for me to separate that out. Okay, I am a Satanist. You are an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be, you know, I don't know, maybe a, a decade later, and, and you start your own magazine. Uh, could you talk to us briefly about From the Pit, what inspired you to create it, uh, you know, and just sort of the life cycle of it? From the Pit uh, began very, uh, very humbly. It was just a typewritten piece of paper that I got tired of writing to the various people that I was in contact with in that area. There were a few people that I was in contact with and we had talked about establishing a grotto. None of them at the time were members. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just self-identified. But And I was having, you know, the same conversations with them in letters, so I just decided, okay, I'm going to start typing it all up and sending them all copies of it. <laughs> and that was the beginning of it. It was, you know, the... the a newsletter for the Abaddon Grotto, which ultimately the grotto just fizzled apart because nobody else really seemed that interested in it. Their mm-hmm. interest was very fleeting. And while one of the members eventually became a member of the church, the rest of them just sort of wandered off. And, uh, but at, by that time, one of them had uh, said, why don't you make this more broadly available? And at the time, there was a magazine coming from England called Dark Lily that ran free classified ads in the back. So I sent a, an ad off. Anybody wants it, send me a self-addressed envelope and a dollar. Mm. <laughs> and it... it seemed to uh, take off a bit. I mean, I started getting a lot more responses than I, than I had expected. And then I get a letter from, uh, I believe 
was from Peter Gilmore first, who expressed uh, curiosity about it since he had never seen any of them and mm -hmm. wondered why I hadn't sent the, uh, the church or the Black Flame a copy of it to look at. And at the time, the reason was I just didn't think it was good enough. <laughs> yeah. So I thought I'm not going to waste their time sending this. So after he requested one, I said, okay, I'm going to send him one. And I sent copies to him. I sent copies to Central. And after that, I heard back from them. And they, uh, they gave me their blessings and uh, said, we're happy with what we're seeing from you, so keep it up. <laughs> nice. Which was very much a great stroke to my ego, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely understand. I, I, I do have to uh, sort of take a step back here for, for the listeners who may not be aware. There was a grotto system um, that the this, Church of Satan endorsed. This was, even, this was even before the grotto system came back. This was oh, very, wow. all, very, very unofficial. Yeah. Uh, there had been the grotto system originally, and then it was dissolved, and there were mm -hmm. these sort of informal groupings that sometimes called themselves grottos just as a nod to the past. But there was nothing official about them in any yeah. way, shape, or form. By the time the church decided to try the grotto experiment again, mine had gone away. So... It was never in any way, shape, or form official. <laughs> so do, do you mind if I ask, um, the popularity of From the Pit, was that mainly international, or did you have uh, local support outside of the grotto that you know existed for the time? It was almost entirely outside wow. of my area. Uh, there were very few people that I was dealing with locally. Mm. Uh, there, was, there was one that hung on for almost the entire run of From the Pit. What was the interval that you were releasing it? Was it like a quarterly thing? It was a quarterly publication. Okay. Nice. Solstices and equinoxes. Yeah. So it, it ran nearly four years, right? So at, yes. at what point, what, what was that decision to just stop creating them? I felt at the time like I had said my piece. Hmm. I was just bored with it, decided to stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nice. Well, okay, so let's talk about that transition because, you know, From the Pet Ends, how long until you collect your essays together into the first iteration of Infernalia? I don't remember exactly. I know mm -hmm. I was selling compilation volumes of the various years of From the Pit still. And... I was just getting uh, letters from people saying that 
it would be really good to have them all in one place. Hmm. So at one point I decided, okay, I'm just going to stop doing the compilations. I'm going to take out all the, the reviews and the other things that were just way too of the moment that were just completely out of date now. Yeah. And, uh, there was, a, there were a few things in from the pit that came from other sources, but it was almost entirely written by me. Wow. So the things that were not by me, obviously I didn't keep, but I culled through the material that I had written and decided, okay, this is, this is good for a, for a publication. I think the, the original was either tape bound or spiral bound. It wasn't anything, uh, you know, amazing as far as presentation goes to probably the most impressive thing about it as far as presentation was the Timothy Patrick Butler, uh, oh. drawing, that I had on the cover, I commissioned a little imp that nice. appeared on the cover. Uh, and then uh, that went uh, out of print when I moved. Uh, I wasn't sure about getting a printer in the new location, so I just stopped it. And uh, I started hearing about, uh, about Lulu and thought, okay, I'll put it together in the new format and I'll send it off and uh, get it done through them. Yeah. And that was the, the second edition. Well, let me ask you about that really quick, if I can. Um, the evolution of ideas, of the essays themselves, was there a change from your perspective in the mid-90s to when the second edition was released in 09? There are some essays that I, I wouldn't say I agree with entirely or I agree still with my uh, presentation. There, there are things that if I wanted to, I could probably change, but I decided it was better to keep it what it was as a yeah. product of its time as a window to, to the past, if you will. Yeah. Uh, if I were to, uh, to write something now, you know, there are a few things that might be somewhat contradictory. Even if you look at Infernalia, there's a progression within some of the things. There's some essays that state some things and then later essays come at things from a somewhat different approach because my perspective shifted a little bit over time. But mm. see, that's just the nature of life. Yeah. The, the core is going to remain, should remain the same unless you, you, you fuck up, <laughs> in which case you might need a major course correction. Yeah. But as long as you're, you know, on track, you'll have deviations, but in general, you'll uh, you'll follow the track. So there there are some things that eh, I may not have expressed as well as I thought I could, or you know, 
some little thing I might differ with, but in general, I I still uh, still hold the same the same views. I'm still the same uh, the same heartless bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's funny. I think it's it's an important idea to double down on briefly, if I can, that no no matter what you do as an individual and and specifically as an artist or specifically as a writer, you're always going to be able to go back to it years later. I mean, this is you know we're we're like twenty years later. I mean you're going to have uh, refined ideas. So it's it's a natural thing, I think, to, to look back on work that you've produced in the past and think, you know what, that could maybe use a little massaging or, or maybe I've evolved a little bit in this specific area. Um, but I do like what you said, how the core remains the same. And I think this is a, a really important idea that, that people need to understand in uh, specifically uh, satanic writing. And that is, you know, we're nearly 50 full years of the Church of Satan's existence and Satanism's codified existence. And the thread of Satanism has never fundamentally altered. It, it has remained the same. So if you have a solid understanding 20 years ago of Satanic principles and you write around those principles, 20 years later, it's not going to change. It's not going to adjust. It's not going to in any way... Uh, be contradictory to itself, which I think is is incredibly. Uh, it, it's a really special thing, uh, idea, occurrence. I, I don't know that any other uh, philosophy or uh, religion can claim the same. Well, uh, Satanism is a philosophy based in reality, and all the others are philosophies rooted in bullshit. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, opinion. Yeah, there's, there's no, not a, a great surprise that everything shifts wildly because it's just wild-eyed nonsense anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, do you mind if I ask how was Infernalia um, received uh, by the public when you uh, released the second edition uh, in '09? Was it something that people uh, accepted, or was there any blowback to some of the ideas in it? Uh, I've never really paid too much attention to people who criticized me, mm -hmm. other than sometimes to laugh at them. <laughs> I wasn't really aware of too much of the response to it. I simply made it available, and if someone wanted it, they could buy it. But I didn't go online looking for comments yeah. where people were saying, oh, it's a bunch of bullshit. I, I don't care. I'm not interested in convincing anybody of anything. And I really don't give a shit what anyone's opinion is. <laughs> nice. I think that's a rarity nowadays, <laughs> to be quite honest. I think people may be a little too concerned with how their, their uh, projects are received. Um, it does speak to a healthy ego, though, so uh, props to you for that. Um, let me ask you about this new edition, this third edition released through Underworld Amusements. How did this come to fruition? What was the process like? Um, process was pretty, uh, pretty painless. Uh, I just got an email pretty much out of the blue from Kevin Slaughter, hmm. uh, 
shortly after the uh, after the conclave, which unfortunately I was not able to attend, <laughs> I got an email and he said, "Would you be interested in an Underworld Amusements edition of Infernalia?" So I said, "Sure." And here we are, a couple of months later, <laughs> and it's out. <laughs> so did you? You know, you talked about how some of your ideas had shifted slightly from the original publication to your second edition, or maybe just till today. Did you ever think, uh, well, maybe I should go back and revise something or or add on to uh, something? Uh, One of the essays. Not really. I still feel that part of the book, to me, is a window to the past. It is a product of its time. And I didn't really want to change that. So just as with when I did the second edition, I added a couple of essays. Uh, and for this one, I have added a ritual. And uh, that's basically the only changes that have been made in the, uh, in the text. Yeah. It's pretty much as it appeared. <laughs> and was that uh, the ritual that was added at the end? Was that the Mass of St. Francis? Or that is the it? Mass of St. Francis, yeah. yes. Nice. Um, a big fan. I, I'm a big fan of uh, the rituals that you've created. And uh, so those who are listening, you should definitely be checking this out because it's really great. It's, a, it's sort of a homage uh, to some of the original rituals that Anton LaVey wrote uh, and still keeping it fresh and new. Um, it's really great. Uh, okay, so the, the process of this new edition, um, pretty much hands-off, right? I mean, you just said, okay, well, Underworld Amusements, uh, Magister Slaughter, you want to put it out? Here it is. Did you have input throughout the process um, I mean the cover's completely different he uh, he sent me the cover and uh, I had you know approval on that uh, which it's an awesome cover so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, that, was, that was a no-brainer I, I approved that right away uh, the uh, there is a piece of interior art associated with the uh, with the Mass of St. Francis that yeah. was commissioned for the book. And uh, I gave my approval on that. But most of the uh, decisions that were made on you know, Kevin Slaughter's end were just really awesome. So it was not a hard thing for me to just look at the things he sent me and say, okay, that just looks great. So <laughs> yeah. I, I really have to give, uh, I really have to give kudos to him credit where credit is due. Yeah. Uh, the new edition looks awesome. And that is, that is a testament to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's, it makes the process, I think, infinitely simpler when you have someone as experienced as uh, Magister Slaughter with Underworld Amusements. He's released so many wonderful volumes that it's, uh, I'm sure there's a huge <laughs> uh, alleviation of stress and concern uh, upon his uh, um, involvement. Um, 
well. Uh, one of the first things that I picked up on is that you know one of these threads that runs through all of your writing is a heavy respect for and profound call to a return to natural law. Um, where does that come from uh, for you as an individual? Uh, it just comes from a disgust at looking at the world around me and what a mess <laughs> people have made of it. <laughs> I look at the way people live and the, the way they think now and it's just so profoundly unnatural <laughs> yeah it's just... where do you think that comes from in humanity is is it um needing to feel like you're continually innovating i uh, is it us forgetting who and what we really are i think most of it comes simply from the fact that humans, by and large, are broken animals. Huh? They don't believe that they are what they are. They believe they are somewhat other. They believe that they are higher than what they are. They believe they are no longer animal, that they have transcended the animal. And that mm -hmm. just makes them an incredibly fucked up animal. Yeah. Well, it's... It's an idea that one thing that I found uh, reading through this entire volume um, in Fernalia is I was expecting to, um, I don't know, find something that was in opposition to the way that I've seen things. You know, similar to the way that when, when you had read the Satanic Bible, and many people have read the Satanic Bible, and they sort of see them, their own thoughts and ideas reflected in the text. I had this same similar experience in reading Infernalia in that I was honestly expecting something, some ideas that were maybe a little extreme or maybe a little bit on edge, but I didn't find anything that, that wasn't, I didn't find anything that was out there. It, do you get that sense from people that they expect your writing to be a little more extreme than, than it's received? Back in the day, I was sometimes considered a little extreme just in the fact that I was direct. Hmm. And it's possible that I may just have a reputation for being extreme as this sort of residual ghost of that that yeah. is carried through time. But I don't think what I was saying was so much extreme as, again, it was just direct. At the time, I was reading a lot of Nietzsche and Nietzsche's admonition to philosophize with a hammer. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to be direct and to the point. I'll say what I want to say, and if it offends somebody, I don't give a shit. <laughs> because, let's face it, I'm talking to anonymous people. I don't yeah. need their approval. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm dealing exactly with somebody face-to-face... I might put more nuance into things, mm -hmm. but for this purpose, I, I didn't need to, uh, to apply so much lesser magic. I could just say what I wanted to say and, you know, let feelings be damned because yeah. while feelings are important, I really don't think they're as important as the modern world likes to think they are. Yeah. You'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, you would think uh, you would think from the way that uh, modern society approaches the idea of feelings that they could literally kill you. (laughs) You have to be so careful not to offend. Um, Yes, you don't want to trigger someone. (laughs) I I do really uh, appreciate that idea that if in person, as any good Satanist, you have to apply principles of lesser magic in any uh, interaction. I mean, that's you controlling your environment you you have to you have to do that but when you are and and i've i've received criticism myself um for the same very the very same thing that you're speaking to of of just being open and honest and direct with your writing in that you're speaking to anyone who happens to read it it is impossible to tailor your interaction through that nor should you because you're not trying to convince someone of something or turn someone's idea into your favor you're just trying to express yourself and sometimes that's received very very brutally and and offensive on on their end um I I really, (laughs) I I sort of envy the approach you took to it because I never took this approach of just saying you know what it's out there deal with it. I'm not even going to look for comments. I'm just going to put it out there. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't, you know, be it as it may. Um, (laughs) With the format that I'm uh, producing here, it's a much more back and forth type format after I've released it. So uh, I get a little bit more shit than maybe maybe you did at the time. But uh, it's... it's, Oh, I got got plenty of response. (laughs) Yeah. I just either ignored it or laughed at it. Nice. Nice. Some of the uh, some of the essays indicate some of the re- the responses that I got from people. Yeah, and that I would then write an essay mocking them. Basically, <laughs> a nice opinion. Let me turn it into something great. <laughs> nice. Well, there's there's a, another thread in your writing. Uh, it's about um, entitlement and victimizers. Uh, speaking, and and this was at the time, this was, uh, you know, 92 to 96, where you were sharing this idea that you were sort of seeing what everyone, you know, 10, 12 years later would recognize as a reality, in that we are becoming so soft and entitled in our approach with life and government and everything. Do you think it's becoming more prevalent or oh, we're very just much, seeing very it much so the, the cult of the victim has never been stronger yeah people feel incomplete if they can't claim to be a victim of something mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's it's really ridiculous <laughs> it's, it's really i mean it's for me it's infuriating when i see people who claim to self-identify as satanists and then take the victimizer role. I mean, that's the worst oh. for me. Satanic <laughs> martyr is a contradiction in terms. And everyone who who even thinks that they should try for that is just, they should just die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, on that same note, I really appreciated your ritual to secure cooperation. <laughs> that's that's another example of me mocking people specifically these satanic martyrs who would (laughs) write to me and oh nobody will sell me a satanic bible I was wearing my fuck god up the ass t-shirt and they didn't like it I wonder why (laughs) 
was great. So funny. I, I highly recommend everyone check that. I mean, of course, read the entire collection, but that one is it's worth going back to because if you are in any way active in any social media, you're going to see this behavior and it is so goddamn frustrating <laughs> seeing it. You just want to pass this ritual to everyone to say, please read, do this, live it. <laughs> Look at yourself in a mirror for fuck's sake. Um, okay, so th there's another idea that I uh, actually really, really appreciate. And that's uh, some of your in uh, really interesting views on the prison system and prisoners as a whole. Um, and how our American society... Um, and I don't know if, if you were speaking to a specific national society, but certainly as our American society sees corporal punishment or the prison system um, as containment rather than actually punishing people. Um, could you speak to that just a little bit? Well, I mean, the, the system got all wrapped up and I, it, a lot of it goes back to these Christian do-gooder types who wanted to reform the prison system so that prison became about reforming people and making people better. <laughs> prison is not for that. Prison is to contain people until such time as you can punish them. And then you turn them loose and say, don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and if they do it again, then you either punish them more severely or you just kill them and be done with it. <laughs> it's yeah. the notion that you're going to try and make people better is, you know, I'm not a big believer that people change their ways mm -hmm. unless you give them something really severe to cause them to do so. And that is mostly done through fear. <laughs> Yeah, consequence. I mean, it, yeah, it really comes down to that. I mean, um, oh, good. You can uh, you can put a thief in jail, and he'll stay there for a few years, and he gets turned loose. And what does he do? He goes and steals again. You put him in jail until the trial is over, and then if he's found guilty, you break his hand and say, <laughs> "Don't steal anymore." And he has the pain of that to remind mm. him, I shouldn't be stealing shit because if they catch me, they might break both my hands. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's an important notion um, to, to hit on. And, and that's, you know, when I, I served in the military and there was a lot of soldiers that I had that I had to deal with the same type of behavior where the consequence did not outweigh the benefits of their behavior. And whenever the consequence of their action doesn't outweigh the benefit of their action, they'll just do whatever they want. Oh, yeah. And then they play the victim when they have to face even that mundane consequence. Like, oh, I, why do I have to? No one well, wants to take responsibility for being, their actions. Claiming to be a victim just is second nature. Mm. Well, it, at this point, it's first nature. Or <laughs> the vast majority of fucked up humans walking the earth uh, everybody's got to be a victim of something mm. and it doesn't matter how far back in time you go 
something fucked up happened to somebody. So there's always something that someone can claim as their golden ticket to victimization. But none of it matters. Nobody gives a shit what happened to you. (laughs) Yeah. Why should I care if you want to be called a victim? It just tells me that you consider yourself weak. Yeah. Oh, God damn. I, I wish more people understood this. And I, I honestly think that, you know, this is child behavior. As children, they don't understand behavior and con- action and consequence, good or bad. They just they think that everything is a reaction people, to them. People are shielded from consequence so much these days mm-hmm. that yeah. it loses I mean, the concept of consequence is vague for most of these people they just can't begin to fathom cause and effect you know that their actions cause other things to happen they just think that this is this conspiracy of the universe against <laughs> them. Yeah. oh man yeah absolutely um <clears throat> well this has been fantastic um, Mr. Rosa, I really enjoy speaking with you, and I, I really appreciate uh, this collection that you've put together uh, and the candor in which you've spoken to me. I was hoping we could close this by uh, performing a reading of Credo of the Modern Man. Would you be okay with that? Sure. Credo for the Modern Man. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will be very hurtful to my psyche will cause extensive psychic scarring and immeasurable damage to my sense of self-esteem. The loss of self-esteem brought about through this exposure to hate speech will be damaging not only to me, but to my children and their children for generations to come. The pain of this can be ameliorated only through long-term therapy with a concerned and loving therapist. This therapy should, of course, be provided for me at public expense, since requiring me to pay for it myself will only compound the damage. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I love how 20 years later, these essays still resonate with behaviors in our society and uh, individually within people that we see every single day. It really speaks to the strength of your ideas and your presentation. Uh, Magister Rose, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, everyone out there, I highly recommend check out Infernalia, underworldamusements.com, amazon.com, search Infernalia. It is worth the read, and you will do yourself a favor by doing so. Again, thank you, Magister Rose. Thank you for having me on. Until we can chat again, hail Satan. Hail Satan. All right, people, that's going to do it for yet another show. We hope you enjoyed it, and we would love to hear from you. Remember, look for that contest link. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments. You can always reach us through social media, Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, MySpace, um, YouTube. Everywhere online, we probably have our toes in there somewhere. And if not our toes, then other appendages that just sort of stick out from time to time and grow. Download the show Mondays via the RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. Of course, we're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, and YouTube. Look for us there. Listen to the shows. Give us your ratings. Give us your comments. We really do appreciate it. And always remember, if you want to learn more about the Church of Satan or Satanism, 
churchofsatan.com is the place to go. Read the Satanic Bible. Read the Satanic Scriptures. And uh, <clears throat> once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Den or Den. My man. I love talking with you on these episodes, and uh, the feedback I get is always positive as well. Uh, until next week, hail Satan. Hail Satan.